cross. Um, a Franciscan university in Ohio, uh, a while back, posted a series of ads on Facebook to promote some of its online theology programs. But Facebook rejected one of the ads because it included a representation of the crucifixion. The monitors at Facebook said the reason for their rejection was that they found the depiction of the cross, quote, shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. Well, the Franciscan University of Steubenville responded with a, a post of their own that no about surprised the folks at Facebook. They agreed with that assessment. The university wrote this. They said, indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational action in history. A man executed by his God. It was shocking. Yes, God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed to a cross and left to die. All the hate of the sin of the world poured out upon him. They went on to say that it, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross, but his love for mankind. Well, he is God. And he could have descended from that cross at any moment. And yes, it was love that kept him there. Love for you, love for me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but instead have the opportunity to have eternal life with him and his father in heaven. Well, today is our 40th week, if you can believe that, in the Gospel of John. We have just a few weeks left. Thank you for hanging with me all of these weeks as we come to the end of John's Gospel. And today, we're going to consider John's eyewitness account of Jesus' death on the cross. John was there, and he shares with us what he observed. In our study of John's gospel, we have been repeatedly reminded that the good news of Jesus is much more than just a feel-good story. It is more than a historical accounting of events. It is a huge plan to redeem and restore people that are alienated from God. We've looked at this verse many times as we've woven our way through John. The very last verse of his gospel, John concludes with this statement. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the theme of John's letter, his gospel. Well, you know, there are a few more exciting units of the U.S. military than the Combat Search and Rescue Team. They're known as CSAR. And it's their job to move into the heart of danger by going after and rescuing pilots or soldiers who may have been captured or trapped behind enemy lines. And every time this team rescues someone, they call it a save. And over the past eight years, these teams have made more than 750 saves in various combat situations. Now, because their missions are so dangerous, they live on the razor's edge between saving a life and losing their own. But according to one CSAR soldier, 
He said, you have to think that when you're, you have to think that you're going to succeed in the mission, no matter what. Well, the motto of this division of the armed services is clear. So that others may live. Isn't that a great motto? So that others may live. Uh, when asked why they risk, sometimes lose their own lives for soldiers, one former CSAR lieutenant said, they are our brothers and sisters in arms. They are valuable assets for our country. We are going to do everything feasible to bring those people back alive. But then he also added this. You can't rescue someone who doesn't want to be rescued. Well, you know, at the cross, God initiated what we might call the ultimate search and rescue mission. He moved into the war zone of sin and evil. God was, in Jesus Christ, rescuing the world back to himself, risking and ultimately losing his life so that we might live. So we might say that the motto of the cross of Christ is also clear, so that others may live. Perhaps that was Jesus' motto long before the United States military adopted it. But how does a cross with a dead person who shed his blood accomplish anything? A crucifixion was not a victory. It was a shameful, painful, agonizing, excruciating defeat. The Romans were so skilled in their use of crucifixions that they learned to perfect pain and torture. To them it was an art. So how could followers of Jesus declare that the one who was God in the flesh was also the one who was stripped naked, marched through the streets, humiliated, and then left to die. How does that gory defeat reconcile all things? What was Jesus doing when he died on the cross? Well, our text today focuses on Jesus, the Lamb of God, as he sets aside his immunity to pain and he enters our world of flesh and blood and tears and deaths. And he brings to a culmination his work on earth by proclaiming, it is finished. And so this morning, we're going to explore three clues that help explain exactly what was going on when Jesus died. And as we look at each one of these clues, we're going to consider first what really happened as we look at what John saw. Remember, he was an eyewitness. And then secondly, why it really matters as we consider why John believed it was so important for us that he wrote it down and that it's been preserved for 2,000 years. And so let's begin by examining what really happened the day that Jesus died. We're going to read some verses together. John 19, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there if you'd like to follow along. Words are going to be on the screen and we're gonna read this first section together. Verses 16 through 21. So I invite you to read this with me. So the soldiers took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross 
to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Hmm, the word of God. Well, it's, it's somewhat difficult for 21st century people like us to comprehend all of the details of first century crucifixions. It's just not something that's a part of our world and our culture. Condemned people in the first century under Roman rule received first what was called a flogging, which sometimes was in itself enough to kill them. If they survived that, then they would be laid back on their backs on the ground and have their hands stretched out onto a crossbeam. Nails would be driven through their wrists to attach them to that beam. The beam would then be attached to a pole and raised upright. Nails would then be driven through the person's feet. The condemned person would sag and have to push himself up in order to get a breath. And sometimes it would take many days for a person to die in this excruciating, painful, torturous manner. But they eventually died, usually of asphyxiation. Every aspect of crucifixion was designed for maximum pain. Crosses were raised in very public places so that passersby could see the condemned criminals die. Because crucifixions were so common, hundreds, thousands of people were crucified every year. And because they were so common, eventually they did not shock the people. They were, however, meant to scare the people. You see, the Roman government was sending a message to the populace that crucifixion is what would happen if you opposed Rome. So as people passed by the three men that were being crucified that day with Jesus, Jesus and the two others, those three men hanging on their crosses, I doubt they would have given it much thought. I wonder who those guys are. I wonder what they did. They might have thought as they passed by and then went by and got on with the rest of their day. Now earlier in the day, the passers-by would have seen a man carrying his cross beam to Golgotha, the site of his execution. They would have seen the soldiers gambling for his garments, taking pity on his mother. This, they would have seen this man, ensuring that she would be cared for after he died, saying a few sentences from the cross and then dying, surprisingly quickly. And then the soldiers breaking the legs of the other two men to hasten their deaths. 
so that all three men could be removed from the crosses before the Sabbath began at sundown. This was an everyday event. But as the apostle John looked closer at Jesus, his Lord, his master, hanging on the cross, he realized that this was in fact a death like no other. You see, Jesus' death was according to a plan. John realized that Jesus' death took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And John realized that God had given him three clues to explain what was going on as Jesus died. And so let's look at those clues. Clue number one, the clothes. The first clue was the clothes. Let's read John's account of this little section. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one place, piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Amen. God's word. Well, a millennium earlier, a thousand years before, King David wrote a song. You can read it in your Bible. We now call it Psalm 22. And in this song, David wrote of a king who had been abandoned by God. He wrote of being mocked and rejected and defeated and yes, eventually even being victorious. And David wrote that at the moment of abandonment, the king's clothes were being divided among his executors by casting lots for it. And so now as Jesus hangs on the cross, the soldiers are casting lots for his garments. And John realizes that David's 1,000-year-old words were a prophetic clue to explain what was going on as he witnessed this event. Jesus was the ultimate king, the all-powerful ruler promised throughout the scriptures, who was in the process of being abandoned by God, but who would ultimately emerge victorious. And so the question is, why? Why was Jesus abandoned by God? And this leads us to clue number two, the bones. The second clue was the bones. Let's read some more of John's accounts beginning in verse 31. Read these words with me. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Hmm. The word of God. Well, a millennium and a half earlier, 1,500 years, 
the people of God were in captivity in Egypt. And God saved his people from Egyptian oppression through a a whole series of supernatural events culminating with what became known as Passover. And God said that he would go through the land and kill every firstborn male. And the way to escape death was to kill a lamb without breaking its bones and paint its blood on the door posts and lintel of the house. And when God saw the blood, he would pass over that house and spare the firstborn male from death. Well, God's people faithfully followed those instructions and their children were indeed spared while the Egyptian captors and overlords lost their children. And in the ensuing years, faithful Jews commemorated God's deliverance each year by sharing in the annual Passover meal. Why is this important to us? Because Jesus was crucified on the day of the Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that the legs of the crucified men might be broken so that their deaths would be hastened, so that they would die quicker. So then their bodies would not have to remain on the crosses, they could be buried according to Jewish tradition, before the Sabbath began. But when the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then the other, they then came to Jesus. And what happened? He was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. And as John looked at this as an eyewitness, And he saw Jesus now dead on the cross. He realized that these things took place because of another ancient prophetic scripture in Psalm 34, that it might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones will be broken. You see, Jesus was like the Passover lamb who died undeservedly so that others might live. Jesus is and was the ultimate Passover lamb who took the punishment for his people's sins, for my sins, for your sins, so that we would not spend eternity separated from God. Well, this then all leads to a final clue as recorded by John. Clue number three, the piercing. The third clue was the piercing. Join me one more time in reading these verses, verses 34 through 37. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Amen, God's word. To make sure that Jesus was already dead, one of the soldiers took it upon himself to pierce Jesus' side with a spear. And at once... The blood and water came out separately, showing us that indeed he was dead. 
But it's important that John realizes in that moment yet another scripture being fulfilled. As he wrote, they will look on him whom they have pierced. He was referring back to the prophet Zechariah who wrote centuries earlier, when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Those words were written hundreds of years before Jesus died. And John understood that Jesus was the one who was pierced. He was the one who opened up a fountain of blessing to cleanse people from their sins. Now, if you've been following along in your Bible, you may have noticed that we skipped a few verses in the middle of John's observation. Those are verses 24 through 30. So let's read that section now. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mm. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Mm. Amen. The word of God. Well, John understood that Jesus was the one. And so, in his eyewitness account, he wants us to recognize some important words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Those three words, it is finished. It is finished. From one Greek word, te telestai, te telestai. Well, during this time in history, that word, te telestai, was a very common word. It was used by many people in everyday life. The primary way that it was used was by a servant or a slave, of which perhaps a third or more of the Roman Empire was made up of servants and slaves. And so this was a very familiar word. And it would have been spoken by that servant or slave reporting to his or her master. And they would have said, I have completed the work assigned to me. Te telestai. Now if you were to look up this word in a Greek dictionary, the definition would be as Jesus used it. It is finished. And depending on the tense that was used, it can also mean it stands finished and it will always be finished. You see, friends, these words specify not the end of Jesus' life. That's not what he's talking about when he says it's finished. 
but he is talking about the completion of his task. He is the great servant leader who is giving up his life and he is saying to his father, Tetelestai, it is finished. The purpose of his life on earth has been completed and the consequences of his work are enduring. And that's the reason Jesus uses this particular word to express to his father that his mission and his work here on earth is done. And so Jesus is saying, Father, it is finished. It stands finished and it will always be finished. There's nothing to add. There's no cleanup. There's nothing left to do that will make this any better. Well, except the big ending, which you know is coming, right? The resurrection. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But when Jesus said these things, his followers on earth, they didn't understand them. They were lost, and they lost all hope. They thought that everything that they lived for and believed in and had followed for the last three and a half years was over and done. It's finished. And although Jesus said it is finished, their understanding of what he really meant would not come until later. In fact, even after his resurrection, even after Jesus has been seen by hundreds of people, most of his followers still did not understand what he meant. It would not be until the Holy Spirit came and the apostles started to teach and share and eventually write the scriptures that we call the New Testament that those early followers would truly understand the fullness that Jesus meant in that simple and yet powerful term, it is finished. You see, friends, you and I have something. We have something that even the early church did not, and that is the complete revelation of God as seen in our Bibles today. And because of that, we are blessed. We are blessed to know that not only it is finished, but what was finished. I want to share a quote from Christian author Max Lucado because he has such a great way of summarizing things succinctly and powerfully. And I think here he summarizes exactly what Jesus was saying when he spoke those words. The history-long plan of redeeming man was finished. The message of God to man was finished. The works done by Jesus as a man on earth were finished. The task of selecting and training ambassadors was finished. The job was finished. The song had been sung. The blood had been poured. The sacrifice had been made. The sting of death had been removed. It was over it is finished. Jesus paid it all. In her book, The God Who Hung on the Cross, journalist Ellen Vaughn retells a gripping story of how the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia. In September 1999, Pastor Tony Singh traveled to Kampong Tom province in northern Cambodia. 
And throughout that isolated area, most villagers had cast their lot with Buddhism or spiritism. Christianity was virtually unheard of even in 1999. But much to Mr. Singh's surprise, when he arrived in one small rural village, the people warmly embraced him and his message about Jesus. He was surprised by this because of so much opposition that he'd experienced in other villages. And so when he asked the villagers about their openness to the gospel, an old woman shuffled forward, bowed, and grasped Mr. Singh's hands, and she said, we have been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story of the mysterious God who had hung on the cross. She said that in the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, the brutal communist-led regime, took over Cambodia, destroying nearly everything in its path. And when the soldiers finally descended on this little rural northern village in 1979, they immediately rounded up all the villagers and forced them to begin to dig their own graves. Well, after the villagers had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die. Some of them screamed out to Buddha. Others screamed to demon spirits or to their ancestors. But one of the woman, women in that little village started to cry for help. Based on a far distant childhood memory, a story that her grandmother had told her about a God who hung on a cross. And so in that moment, the woman prayed. She prayed to that unknown God on a cross. She thought, surely if this God had known suffering, he would have compassion on their plight in their little rural village in northern Cambodia. Well, suddenly, her solitary cry to the God on the cross became one great wail as the entire village started praying to the God who suffered and hung on the cross. And as they continued to face their own graves, the wailing slowly turned to a quiet crying. And then there was an eerie silence in that muggy jungle air. Slowly, as they dared to turn around and face their captors, they discovered that the soldiers were gone. They disappeared. And as the old woman finished telling Pastor Sang this story, she said, ever since that day, 20 years ago, we have been waiting, waiting for someone to come and share with us the rest of the story about the God who hung on a cross. Not powerful? Friends, the day that Jesus died was an incredible day. Jesus' death was like none other. Jesus died to save sinners like you, like me. And Jesus' death and the circumstances of his death were foretold repeatedly 
for hundreds and thousands of years before it happened. And so today, may we thank God for Jesus' death on our behalf. Because he indeed is the God who hung on a cross. Thank you.